The views and opinions expressed by a little bit culty are those of the hosts and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by our guests, bloggers, sponsors, or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, group, club, organization, business individual, anyone, or anything. Hey everyone, I'm Sarah Edmondson. Hi, I'm Anthony Ames, Sarah's husband, aka Nippy. And we're here to talk about things that are just a, a little, little bit, bit culty. We were in a cult and we woke up. And it was all captured in a docuseries called The Vow on HBO, also in my memoir, Scarred. And then we made this podcast. I guess you could say we're technically a cult show now. But not your typical cult show. We're not so much about the grisly details. We are about kicking the doors down on the shame and the secrets that make these culty things so destructive. We're here to have frank conversations about how cool things can cross over into the cultiverse. How to spot trouble when you see it, and what happens when it comes to recovering from something culty, if that happens to you. Each week, we'll call on experts, advocates, fellow survivors, and whistleblowers to help us unpack what's going on in the cultiverse. We're here to share what we know on everything from red flags to resiliency and to have a few laughs along the way, because sometimes you gotta laugh. <laughs> Thank God. Now we have a lot to cover, so let's get this show rolling, shall we? A Little Bit Culty Season 2 drops new episodes every Monday on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And to learn more, visit us on Instagram or at a littlebitculty.com. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to A Little Bit Culty. Or good afternoon, everybody. You don't know when they're listening to this, right? Good day. Good evening. Good day. We are going to do a deep dive today into the Mormon church. Oh, the Mormon church. We're going back to my roots, Sarah, my Mormon lineage. <laughs> I have a uh, photo album that I got at my great aunt's funeral in 1998, and it was given to us. And we opened a page from like 1902, and it had like, a hundred of my relatives in like a team photo and like 20 of them were in like jailbird outfits for polygamy. And my this dad goes- This is the goes, first time you're telling me this? Yeah, well, I, show, I have the book at home. I just saw it when I was back over the summer and my dad gives it to me. He goes, he goes want to see your relatives? <laughs> it's like a team photo of like six wives with like a hundred kids. I'm like, dad. He's like, I know. I just found out about it too. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this. I don't know if I want this in the well, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's my heritage, I guess. I don't know. I guess so. I'm, I'm all messed up. <laughs> and we're about to find out how much. <laughs> I wasn't going to lead with that when we met. You know. I'm glad. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, here's the deal. I actually didn't know much about Mormonism before this episode. It's similar to what I knew about Scientology when I was in, in Nexium. I was like, oh, it sounds a bit weird, maybe a little bit culty, but I didn't understand why. That. Yeah. Didn't understand why or how. But we found the perfect guest to do the deep dive with. His name is John DeLynn, and he is a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology and is a groundbreaking podcast host and is also an excommunicated member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon or LDS Church. DeLynn founded the Mormon Stories podcast in 2005 and is a passionate advocate for the rights of skeptics in Mormonism, LGBTQ rights, equality for women, and other individual views outside mainstream Mormonism. His research and podcasting work have been highlighted in the New York Times, Good Morning America, and on CBS Evening News. 
His work was also featured in HBO's featured documentary film, Believer, starring Imagine Dragons, Daniel Reynolds, Neon Treese, Tyler Glenn. He joins us today to discuss his transformation from being raised in a conservative Texas Mormon family to an LGBTQ ally and a voice for over 10 million ex-Mormons. We'll also talk about what it means to truly understand and support people experiencing faith crisis and transitions when they leave religious orthodoxy. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Dr. John DeLynn. Welcome, John DeLynn. Thank you, guys. I am so thrilled to be here. This is uh, a dream come true. It is a dream come true for us, too. And I don't know <laughs> if, we, if, if we ever told you how this happened, but we were actually in Nashville this summer and we met a mutual friend, Emily, who knew our story from The Vow. And it just happened that Nippy got a audition for a, a TV show called Under the Banner of Heaven. Yeah. about the Mormon story. And he shared that with Emily, who we knew was Mormon, ex-ish Mormon, um, questioning Mormon, I guess. And then we, we told her about the podcast and she said, you need to speak to John DeLynn. <laughs> He's the guy. He's got this podcast, Mormon Stories, been doing it for so long. And and, and by the way, we, we have to wonder if there is divine intervention in the universe because I had emailed you that very week to invite you on to Mormon Stories podcast. And so while I was waiting for you to respond, you 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 guys are reaching out to me from another angle. And it just makes me kind of reconsider whether there might be some type of divine presence. Not really, but you know. It's a, it's a I force. I think there might be. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's Joseph Smith in the grave, but it's some sort of divine presence. But then I ended up getting the same audition, well, for a different part. And so I started listening to Under the Under the Banner of Heaven on Audible by John Krakauer, yeah. which the series is based off of. And I realized like I had a loose understanding of Mormonism. I had seen the Book of Mormon on Broadway, which I'm curious <laughs> to know if you've seen and what you think about the Book of Mormon. But I, I honestly probably didn't understand a quarter of it because I didn't know all the references that I know now. Have you seen it? Well, so first of all, I read the John Krakauer book, Under the Banner of Heaven, while I was working at Microsoft, going through my own faith crisis. I had read Into wow. Thin Air and Into the Wild before, and so I was a Krakauer fan anyway. Likewise, yeah. And that, that book was a huge punch to the gut for me, and it made me feel things it made me connect to my Mormonism and, and my Mormon upbringing and the implications of Mormon doctrine and theology in ways that I, up until that point, had never been able to emotionally connect to. The kind of like the the potential ramifications of Joseph Smith's beliefs, you know, extended to their uh, full conclusion. So that that book is a really important book. It doesn't really represent mainstream Mormonism, mm -hmm. but it represents people that are really trying to live Joseph Smith's version of Mormonism. So anyway, I just, I can't recommend that book highly enough, but it is a gut punch. It's a gut punch for me mm. too. And I hadn't even, I'm not Mormon. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We'll talk and it's more real. about and things, that. Yeah. If you look at like Lori Vallow and Chad Daybill, I don't know if any of our listeners know those names, but it's basically these members of the of the Mormon church who are what are called preppers who are waiting for the second coming and, and preparing for the second coming. They ended up killing, you know, her two kids, her ex-husband, her brother, and his wife, all with the same sort of, uh, you know, doctrinal and theological beliefs as the Lafferty brothers. 
And so that that sort of you know ramification again of Mormon doctrine and theology mm-hmm. lives with us today in 2021. And wow. so that's all that's all mm-hmm. very real. It's not just like creative fiction. It's a very well hidden story, you know, because my lineage is Mormon. My grandparents, I think we we spoke about yeah. this a little bit. My granddad and my grandmother were born in Ogden, Utah. Wow. My dad was born in Ogden, Utah. And my experience of the Mormon religion, Latter-day Saints, is where they'd come knocking on my dad's door because my parent, my grandparents stopped practicing or weren't but really into it. they track you down. They track you down. Yeah, they have they a list. They track you down. Yeah. And in Atlanta, Georgia, I have three or four memories of them knocking on our door yeah. being like, hey, is Anthony Ames here? And then I can have a vivid memory of my mom answering the door. My dad at the top of the stairs goes, tell him I'm dead. <laughs> <laughs> and, they just kind of, and that, they never showed up again. So yeah. it always seemed like a benign kind of friendly, kind of how it's portrayed in Book of Mormon, like innocent. Yeah. Nippy, it's fascinating to know you have that connection. And Sarah, just to answer your question, the podcast was in full swing in 2011-ish when the Book of Mormon musical came out. And so Lori Goodstein, who is the religion reporter for the New York Times, actually flew me out to New York City for the weekend premiere of the Book of Mormon musical. I sat next to Lori during opening weekend. I watched the Book of Mormon musical with Lori, and she reported on my reactions to it. And we helped- We held our first, you know, sort of international podcast conference in New York City in 2011 on the weekend, wow. uh, very same weekend. But I I wept during the, the Book of Mormon musical. I've seen it four times. I know all the songs. It connected with me in very real ways. And in very, very real ways, you know, the musical has very little to do with Mormonism and in some ways captures Mormonism better than, you know, anything I've ever seen. It's powerful. It's, I recommend no. it to everybody. You know, there's like the F word is, do you guys swear on this podcast? You do <laughs> yes, swear, Yes, we right? swear. We have a lot of F-bombs. I think I, right. yeah, on I Lee, so. I wouldn't say fuck, but I'm going to say fuck today just as a special do treat it. for you guys. Thank I you. usually don't say that word, but I'm trying to deprogram. So the word Good fuck is said like a hundred times in the Book of Mormon musicals. You have to <laughs> kind of be prepared for that. But you know what? I don't remember it. Like I said, I have to see it again now that I've researched and read under the banner of heaven and, and everything to prepare to talk to you. But what I remember the most is sitting in front of these two elderly women who I don't think knew that it was a parody or a satire. <laughs> and they thought they were coming to see like a tribute to Joe Smith. Oh, well, the look on their faces. I think they don't even I don't think they even stayed for the whole thing. I think they left because they were just like, you know, in shock well, that it's a sacrilege. It's, it's- it's our fiddler on the roof moment. Basically, I've always wanted Mormonism to have its fiddler on the roof moment, and we got it. Do, do you guys want to have Nexium the musical? Mm, I don't. I just don't feel like it's real. So. I'm sorry. I don't know if I can hear. No, but you know what? What's crazy is that Keith was really into musicals. Like he had one performed for him at every one of his birthday weeks, and and uh, oh he, he was gosh. really into it. So I bet he would like to have a musical oh, for him. Yeah. But Sarah, I don't buy that he was really into musicals. No, I think he was. I think those excuse for him to, to get women to go sing for him okay so that's stuff. why he was into musicals that's my yeah. thing I, that's we my tangented guess. my other question for you since we're talking about the mainstream pop references to mormonism what about big love did you ever watch that yeah so i did I, well i was still active semi-believing mormon when big love came out so honestly mm-hmm. i tried to watch it but the sex scenes and the profanity were too much for me i'm still very very mormon in fact i I feel like I'm the most Mormon ex-Mormon on the planet. I still haven't tried beer. I still haven't tried marijuana. 
I haven't okay. tried. I, it's hard for me to swear. And so when Big Love came out, just long story short, it was too graphic <laughs> for me. <laughs> that sounds so weird. When we come to Salt Lake, I don't want to be the person that introduces beer in your life, but maybe we could. Yeah, sure. Don't show up with par- drug paraphernalia. And- <laughs> Here, John, just eat this. Leave him on a bar stool. Just eat this. You're going to have a really good time. No, just kidding. First one's free, John. <laughs> you don't know how many. You don't know how many ex-Mormons have tried to get me to do psilocybin and ayahuasca and weed. And like every day somebody tries to get me to do that stuff. And it's just the, the grooves for me are worn so deep that I just, I, I haven't been able to kind of shake that superstition. You know what? I think that's fine. There are some important things to take away. I mean, I think that's a question we'll get into because you look at some of the tenets of Mormonism. If, if the problem is there's so much fear around it that it becomes debilitating. But the, the principles of, you know, not of behaving in an altruistic way, I think, are, are things to salvage. Well, there has to on, be good. On some level, as long as it's right? not. Yeah. That was actually one of our, our first questions. Generally, our format, John, for ours, our podcast is, you know, how did you get in? How did you wake up? And, and how are you healing? But for you, you didn't get in. You, you were born into it. And before we get to that, I wanted to ask, so people who don't know much about Mormonism, when people followed Joseph Smith, what did they think they were getting into? What was the promise that they were signing up for back in 18... 1830. 1830. Yeah. yeah. So, what, so what was the, what, what were they signing up for? So Mormonism was founded in 1830 by Joseph Smith in upstate New York. And Joseph Smith had kind of an eclectic Christian upbringing where there's a lot of religious diversity and even contention in his family. They were poor. They were failed farmers. And he had several siblings and they all lived in this log cabin, sleeping like right next to each other, kept moving from farm to farm and in poverty. His parents were kind of like seekers and really superstitious. And the biggest issue at the time was so many different Protestant Christian churches all claiming to be the one true church, Methodists, uh, Presbyterians, Baptists. And there was a lot of religious conflict in Joseph Smith's home of origin. And there was a lot of folk magic and superstition. One thing people don't know about the founder of Mormonism, Joseph Smith, is before he uh, produced the Book of Mormon and started the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he was a bona fide treasure digger, which meant Mm -hmm. uh, back in the 1820s that he would take a, a stone, put it in a hat, and tell his neighbors, hey, I can find buried treasure in the ground that's often guarded by angels or spirits. And so he would take these groups of people around in the forest, over the mountainside, and say, oh my gosh, there's treasure underneath the ground right here. Start digging. They would all start digging. And then right before they were about to find the treasure, he would say, oh, the spirit moved the treasure because you didn't kill the chicken in quite the right way, or you didn't say the right words, but pay me my money. And believe it or not, he did like something like 16 or 18 treasure digs, pretty much always got paid and never found any buried treasure. But what he, interestingly, people still believed in him even after the treasure dig had failed. And what he learned prior to ever starting a religion is that he could get people to believe that he had special powers. And I would say that is the, the most important promise that led people to join Mormonism in the 1830s and 40s. It's like, wait a minute. Okay, we know that the Bible had prophets like Moses and and David and Mm -hmm. Solomon and Peter, James, and John, but like 
our understanding was, was that God stopped talking to men and doing miraculous things once Jesus died and once the apostles died. What Joseph Smith did is he came back and said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm talking to God now and I have special powers. And if you join my church, if you read my Book of Mormon, and if you follow me, I will tell you what God wants humankind to know today, and I will lead you to a a form of heaven that is not just like a happy place. Joseph Smith's theology evolved to the point where he was promising people, if you follow Mormonism the way I teach it, you will become a god or goddess someday and rule over your own planet and have billions of of children who come and incorporate their own earths, and you will rule over an earth with billions of humans on it, just like God and Jesus rule over the earth right now. That, I mean, that's kind of going big, but that's what Joseph Smith did. He went big and he basically promised people they could become gods someday. Wow. That's, that's kind of cool, right? Wouldn't yeah. it be cool to become a god? I'd sign up. How much? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard for us to talk to anyone in, in any of these groups and not make comparisons to our own experience. But that was definitely something that struck me as a instant similarity is that Joe Smith it was a con man. He also was a convicted con man, if I read that correctly. Like he Absolutely. got arrested and he was yep. he, he he the judge said, you got to stop doing this. And he did mm-hmm. it anyway. And that same mm-hmm. thing, Keith did the same thing. He got he got yeah. in trouble. He got caught. They said you can't do another MLM scheme, and then he did. Yep, our pyramid scheme in upstate New in York. Upstate New York. <laughs> Part of Mormon history is he he starts the treasure digging in Pennsylvania. He kind of gets kicked out of there. So he goes to New York and starts the church. He gets kicked out of there. He goes to Ohio, gets kicked out of there. Goes to Missouri, gets kicked out of there. Goes to Illinois, gets kicked out of there and killed. And then Mormons moved to Utah. And and Mormons wreaked havoc in every single town they moved to. And it was all led by, by Joseph Smith. There was financial scandal. There was sexual scandal. There was uh, fraud and you know, mass defections. But one of the things Joseph Smith was so skilled at was rebounding. He was super resilient. He was resilient AF, as they say uh, these days. <laughs> right. people say, yeah. Re- resilient as fuck. And he he just, every time he was down, he was able to dust himself off and get back up. Well, that's the way the narcissistic, you know, um, sociopath mind works. Like, you know, I, I remember, and this isn't a political statement, but one of the things that allows Trump to keep going when we had one lawsuit or threatened with one lawsuit, Sarah, our worlds were like freaking out. Like, remember that, Sarah? We we're like, oh my God, you know, we're, we have people coming out. He had oh 5,000 yeah. against him at one point. He doesn't care. Those kinds of people don't have that kind of sensitivity or whatever it is to, to have that mean what it, sh- what it should mean to them. And they keep going and they steamroll whomever's in their, in their way. And one of the most mind-blowing things I've learned in the cult literature you know, I, I learned this, I think, from the from not just the Jehovah's Witnesses, but from some of these other cults that were predicting a date where Jesus would come again. What what psychologists learned in the early 1900s was that if a cult predicted a date where you know the end would come and Jesus would come, and then the date came and passed, all the cult leaders needed to do was to blame the failed prophecy. 
mercy on the unworthiness of the followers, and they would believe more after the failed prophecy than they did before if you can always reverse the blame back on the unworthiness of the mm. members. And Joseph Smith mm-hmm. was one of the first to really learn this. And so all he had to do was make prophecies. If they happen to come true, well, then he's a prophet. If they didn't come true, he would just blame the members for being bad people, and then they would just want to follow him more. And so mm. his failures became virtues and even made him stronger. And I think I agree. It was the narcissistic personality that allowed him to not just go, oh my gosh, I'm mm. I'm deceiving people. I need to stop. It's like, oh my gosh, all these failures are going to make me stronger. I'm going to keep going. It's, so it's almost like Joe Smith invented gaslighting. Well, he he it definitely was the first, anyway. He perfected it. He, perfected he took it. it to the next he, level. He really did. He is a legend. <laughs> I, I want to say this. Yeah. The Mormon church is the most successful cult in the past two or 300 years by far. And we can talk about that later. Well, that is one of the questions is how do you think it got to be that successful? And how, how are so many people Mormons and not knowing that it's like, it's so obvious to me when you have the checklist of what makes a cult or high control group or high demand group, or whatever you want to call it, it hits every single checkbox. So how, how do people who are, who are still believers not see that? Well, okay. So there are a couple, I I was thinking a lot about this, trying to prepare for this episode. There are a couple things that lead to the success of Mormonism. One is the death, the martyrdom of its prophet. So when you, when you kill someone's prophet and they're still thinking he's a prophet, it's just like Jesus, like all of a sudden people believe even more passionately because he was killed. And so, you know, there's that saying, never make a martyr out of somebody or the movement's just going to grow. And so if, if Joseph Smith had been allowed to just like continue his sexual predation and his illegal activities, he would have just been incarcerated and the church probably would have fractured and died. But by killing him, that was certainly thing number one. Thing number two is that the Mormons relocated to Utah and it never hurts to be able to control multiple state territories in a theocracy for, let's just say, 50 years or 150 years, depending on how you're counting, mm-hmm. to be able to gain assets. And so when when Joseph Smith dies, Brigham Young takes over, brings all the, the Mormon pioneers over to Utah. It's It's part of Mexico or Texas at the time. The, the United States hadn't even expanded westward yet. And so just imagine 50 years of being able to just like own all the businesses, own all the land, own all the assets, have all these followers, you know, doing whatever you want, being outside of the jurisdiction of legal authority and just amassing wealth and wealth and property and wealth. And by the way, having five, 10 children per family, you get a really good head start. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. that that's kind of step two. And then when the federal government shut down polygamy and we had to kind of rebrand, the Mormon church got really good at being what I like to call, uh, let's see, sort of like a, a happy cult, kind of like Scientology light. There's different ways of saying it, but the term I, I thought of just now is titration. And the, the term titration for me comes from the medical field of like, what's just the right drip, just the right dosage. You want to be enough of a cult to get all your members to do whatever you say they should do, but not too much of a cult so that your assets aren't seized and your leader gets thrown in jail and everybody thinks mm-hmm. you're evil. And when the Mormon church rebranded in the 1940s and 50s, 
became like Donny Osmond and Marie, clean cut, happy, smiley, sort of that persona, which they weren't prior to the 1940s. Once they adopted this all-American persona and became a cult at the right dosage, they they were able to start amassing mm-hmm. wealth like you would not believe. And today, uh, the, the, the Mormon church is worth probably at least a trillion dollars, certainly hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's billions wow. with a B, but probably close to a trillion dollars. And they did that by not be, by being a little wow. bit culty, but not too much culty, <laughs> right? Yeah. And they right, learned that right. from Joseph Smith's mistakes, frankly. Right couple tangents, I have to say, we've, I don't think Nippy and I have ever talked about this on our podcast, but that was Keith's plan. He wanted to find some land. He wanted his own everything. He wanted his own government, his own way of doing currency, his own internet, right, Nip? Well, I think that's what he dangled. I don't think he was motivated. I think Keith was too lazy. He was lazy. <laughs> I don't think but, he but was motivated. But he talked about that. Yeah. Like, yeah, he just talked. It was all talk. Everything he did was talk. And I think he humored people who had the ideas. But do you remember when we that's were trying take. to figure out, like, should we live in Vancouver? Should we live in New York? And when she was still alive, was like, well, we're going to get this piece of land. Rosa Laura is finding this land. Like John Galt from Atlas Shrugged, like we're finding our own community. And I feel like the Mormons did that correctly in the way that I think every cult leader would want. Well, it seemed like they had a lot of motivation and a lot of drive behind it. You know, Joe Smith was moving from place to place. And like you said, he was resilient. Yeah. And and basically, you know, you could say that Joseph Smith was lazy, too. He definitely could work and, and was perceived in his younger years as being a strong, hard worker. But, you know, cult leaders, there's a virtue in, in being able to get other people to do your work for you. And, and that's, yes. that's, a, that's yes. a virtue, not a defect. If, if you are lazy, but you're able to get people to do your bidding, then, yeah, you can just kind of have wife number 26 and wife number 27 and mm-hmm. wife number 28 while everybody else is building your kingdom. As I watched uh, Nexium, as I listened to Nexium podcasts and watched Nexium documentaries, I thought, man, I kind of wonder if Keith studied a little bit out of Joseph Smith's playbook a little I bit. I think he did. Maybe. I think he studied all yeah, these he, guys. He yeah. took from Scientology. He definitely liked the, I mean, he would say polyamory, but the polygamous aspect of Mormonism. And I think both of them, it seems like we're sex addicts. And one thing that I hadn't put together until I read Under the Banner of Heaven, there was an, a line he said something about that they're heightened lying, like the fact that they were both such living these double lives, like presenting one thing, but doing another in that state can also heighten libido, their libidos. So I don't know if that's true. And we'll we'll probably never know with either of them. But that's an interesting theory to know that the con men aspect of it also reinforce their sexual drive. Yeah, I I think that power you know, I, I, I'm remembering a Scarface quote, kind of an Al Pacino quote. I think he said, first you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the women. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not advocating that philosophy. No. <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but power is attractive, I think, as primates. I mean, if you just look at kind of apes and yeah. how, how they work with the alpha male and the, the gray back, if you're an alpha male, you, you I think not only do, are women attracted to you, but but you want to spread your seed, and I know it's a gross, offensive term. Just think power breeds sexual predation. And to be honest, I've, I've had a tiny taste of becoming a public figure just as a podcaster, and it's crazy. You know, if you've been in the entertainment industry at all as a, as a movie star or as a, someone in the movies or in entertainment, you, you always have to be on your guard because, you know, people are attracted to power, and power can be easily exploited for, un, you know, 
uh, let's just say unrighteous yeah. gain. And I just think Joseph Smith, yeah. he probably w- had a high libido. He probably had some trauma and some dysfunction, but he just figured out how to get a lot of power. And I don't care what you are. You could be ex-Mormon or ex-Nexium. If you get too much power and you're, and you're not really that principled and centered, it mm-hmm. can, it can go crazy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It's, it's right for abuse. I remember reading something Robert Kennedy said, and he said he had a conversation with his dad and he's like, be careful. Everyone who has power will abuse it at some time. Yeah. It's the whole Lord of the Rings, you know, the analogy yeah. of the ring and Frodo. And yeah, I just think power corrupts. George Orwell, I think said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's why the founding fathers had checks and balances because they just knew, totally. you know, yeah. If this thing gets into one person's hands. And I'm not trying to make excuses for Joseph Smith. Not everyone becomes a sexual predator who has power. You have to understand what you're looking at. But I think something that you you guys and I have in common is you can't make the world safe for people, but you can make people safe for the world. You, You know, there's an Indian proverb. You can't cover the world in leather so everyone's feet are protected, but you can cover people's feet in leather so that they're protected. And I think what we're trying to do, if you educate people about coercive, you know, undue influence, cult-like influence, then you, you inoculate people from not just, not just religious cults, but Mm -hmm. business cults and therapist cults and, you know, yoga cults and, and, and new, new age cults, all the cults, right? To your point, you have people that are aligned with it unwittingly promoting the abuse. And I think that's where if people can develop a self-awareness as to what's what's informing them it is the most powerful thing. So when presented with something that could be abusive, they know what it looks like and sounds like immediately in real time. Yeah, definitely. I'm also guessing that the, the majority of Mormons haven't necessarily done the research. Like I've heard you speak in many of your interviews where you talk about how you woke up and what you were researching. And I want to hear more about that. But like, you know, for us included, we were part of this group. We never like looked into Keith's background. We never, we just trusted what was told about him. We didn't do the deep dive till after. And once we did, we're, I mean, all the information was there. And it was like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> we went to the wrong people yeah, for we the went information to, we too. We went to Keith and his acolyte. And in the beginning, I went in there and was like, well, you know, what, what you is know, this? And I got, yeah, but you're going to get lied to by the flying monkeys. Lied to. This is one of the most profound things that I've thought about. There's, there's a little bit of history. So the Mormon church is led by a prophet, somebody who Mormons believe speaks to God. And when one prophet dies, another prophet is, is chosen by God. In the 1940s, okay, the niece of the Mormon prophet at the time, his name was David O. McKay, his niece, whose name was Fawn McKay Brody, writes a tell-all, super legitimate biography on Joseph Smith called No Man Knows My History. And to this day, it stands as the, the most thorough, accurate, and uh, compelling biography ever written about Joseph Smith. The history withstands the test of time. She was a UCLA historian. And that book has been around now for 70 years. And to this day, most Mormons have never heard of the book. And it tells 80% of what historians now know of Joseph Smith's corruption. It talks about his treasure digging, his use of the peepstone in a hat. It talks about the Book of Mormon being a plagiarist book, being a fraud. It talks about this other scripture called the Book of Abraham being a false translation of Egyptian papyri. It talks about Joseph Smith's polygamy and polyandry. It talks about the financial scandals. 
And to this day, Mormons have never heard of it. In fact, my excommunication, as another example, was literally tweeted by the New York Times. It was global news. And I'm not important, but I mean, the New York Times is important. And even though my podcast has now been in existence for 16 years, my excommunication was global news in 2021. Most Mormons have, and I live in the heart. I live in Mormon Vatican City, right? I live in the heart of Salt Lake City. Most Mormons have never heard of me or my podcast. And and that just goes to Stephen Hassan's bite wow. model, right? What cults do is they control the information so that they can control the thoughts of people. And they excommunicated me. The Mormon church excommunicated me so that Mormons would be terrified to even listen to my podcast. And by doing that, they made it so to this day, most Mormons have no idea that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, that that the Book of Mormon and the Book of Abraham are literal proven frauds. Most Mormons have no idea of any of this, and they just go on feeling like their prophet talks to God. Joseph Smith was God's one true prophet, and Jesus is coming any day. That's pretty amazing. How are they able to do that, considering you're like right there? What are the forces they're using? What are they doing to... that? That's amazing to me. Mormons are conditioned from birth to never read a book or listen to a podcast or watch a YouTube channel or anything that is religious in nature if it's not originating from the church and approved by the church. So from very early ages, doubt is uh, demonized. Questions are demonized and suppressed. Anyone who asks uncomfortable questions is silenced or marginalized from the community. And Mormons are taught to shun and avoid anyone who doubts or questions or leaves the church. And then there's this idea of anti-Mormon literature, which is any source of information that's critical of the church. That is combined with a Mormon teaching that if you feel uncomfortable, you're taught as a child that it's Satan making you feel uncomfortable. And so anytime a Mormon is like stumbles on the internet to something that that feels uncomfortable, it's like, oh my gosh, this is something untrue about Joseph Smith, or this is something about the Book of Mormon. Oh, this doesn't come from the church. And it's making me feel uncomfortable, which I've been conditioned to think is from Satan. I'm going to go listen to a Mormon hymn or study my Mormon scriptures. I'm going to go to my bishop and repent, and I'm going to avoid that information. And so I call it the bubble. Mormons live in this bubble of you know acceptable information and forbidden information is kept outside the bubble. And to this day, you've got lawyers and doctors and you know PhDs who are Orthodox Mormons who don't know the first thing about the church's history or about any of its critics. And it's just one of the most mind-blowing. It's kind of like Scientologists that have never right. that have never heard of Leah Remini or or Mike Rinder. You know, it's just mm-hmm. that's what cults perfect is the ability to control people's thoughts through emotional coercion and manipulation mm-hmm. and by controlling the information they receive. And it's it's their secret sauce. You know, it's, it's what they so do. So I come to you six, seven years old and I say, dad, what about this? Am I punished or am I told that son, Satan- that is anti-Mormon lies and you need to stay as far away from that as you can. Got it. This is why we had Stephen Hassan on as, as one of our first guests. So he could explain the bite model and that people who were in other groups could compare their experience. Cause I think that's the number one thing on the checklist or in the top five for sure is the controlling of the information. Yeah, And it's so 
so dangerous. And speaking of that, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to ours, but we have the segment called That Chaps My Ass. Yeah. And I would love to know what chaps your ass the most about the, about the Mormon church or the doctrine or whatever. But I wanted to share after reading Under the Banner of Heaven, what chaps my ass the most? And I guess this is based on the belief that if you're Mormon, you can you have a direct line to God, which is cool. I, I understand the draw of that. But the thing that really bothers me is that every now and then there's this, you know, a man because only the men can do this, right? Uh, as the prophets and being bishops. Is that the right word? Like who are what the, the upper ranks? So bishops lead congregations. Okay. And, and, the, and the prophets and apostles lead the church. And only they have the direct line to God, right? Like women don't? Women have to go through men to know what God wants. Yeah. Okay. So there's another problem, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> this is email to God? <laughs> no, they're disconnected to God. But every now and then, and this really stood out to me as a major ass chapping, is that they're like, okay, so I spoke to God and God said, I, you know, even though she's only 12, little Tammy here is going to be my wife. Or even though she's actually my daughter, God said, I have to bed her. Like the insanity out of that manipulation of that so-called talking to God power to feed one's own pedophilic sex drive. I don't know. It's just that to me, like how is somebody on the outside going? No, you don't. You're not talking to God. You're just horny. Like what? What? <laughs> but like what, how, why don't people say no to that? Like, how do they get away with that? Well, I I've said it other places that, you know, I still believe in freedom of, of information, freedom of thought, freedom of belief. Like we can't go around policing people's thoughts or beliefs. And I don't hate religion per se, but there is one thing related to religion that I actually believe should be illegal. I think it should be illegal to claim that you speak for God, that anyone speaks for God, because it's just too much power. Right. Anybody who claims mm -hmm. to speak for God has too much power. And it doesn't matter if it's a 14-year-old girl and she's your daughter. If God is telling you that, that his chosen prophet on the earth wants your daughter, then you're supposed to give your daughter. And that is exactly what Joseph Smith did. He would go to men, women, and children and say, you know, you or your wife or your daughter need to be my wife. And he did it with 14-year-olds. He did it with other men's wives. At least 10 of his, Joseph Smith had between 30 and 40 wives. A most The overwhelming majority of Mormons don't know what I'm about to say, even though this information has been out since 1945 or earlier. Joseph Smith had between 30 and 40 wives. Joseph Smith had so many wives, we don't know how many wives he had. <laughs> but he had between 30 and 40 wives. That's our best count. He had 14-year-olds as wives. He had sister pairs as wives. He had mother-daughter pairs as wives. And over 10 of his wives were married to other men at the time that he married them, sometimes with the consent of the husband, sometimes without. But there's that scene in that David Koresh docudrama where David Koresh is sitting on the roof with one of his male followers. And he says, hey, male follower, I'd like to relieve you of the burden of having sex with your wife. And the guy's like, okay, thank you, brother David. You know, that's what Joseph Smith did. And it is literally because he claimed to speak for God. So Sarah, I endorse that ass chapping source. Thank you. <laughs> it's too much power. How many children did Joseph Smith have? Emma, Joseph Smith's first wife, probably had like seven, bore like seven kids. Several of them died. There's no evidence of biological children coming from any of his polygamous wives. But, you know, there's there's rumors of abortions that may have happened. There's rumors of, you know, I mean, of course, there's pull-out methods. There's self-induced abortions. Like, 
and by the way, he's having sex with with other men's wives. And so, you know, we we don't we haven't been able to genetically test, you know, all of the potential posterity. So that's a mystery. But yeah. what's not a mystery is that he had, he was having sex with these women because later on they testified in court. Many of them signed sworn affidavits that they were married to him in the very deed. So that's something that's not open for dispute is that he was having sex with these women. And then he actually made it uh, a thing in a term which I now know is the principle. Yeah. Can you explain that to our listeners? Yeah, so this is something that's kind of subtle. The current Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church, they simultaneously denounce and and believe in and embrace polygamy to this day. So so the Mormon Church in 1890 was forced to stop practicing polygamy by the federal government. So they issued a declaration where they told the whole world, okay, we are now going to stop practicing polygamy. And then immediately they continue practicing polygamy for another 15 years. They sent followers to Mexico. They sent followers to Canada. And even here in Utah, they secretly continued practicing polygamy until there was kind of like a second federal prosecution that happened in like the 1900, early 1900s. And then the church issued to get seated as U.S. senators, as an official state, to achieve statehood, the church issued a second declaration that said, okay, now this time we're really stopping polygamy. And they officially stopped it in like 1905. However, if you if you Google Doctrine and Covenants 132, which is a section of you know, one of the Mormon church's key scriptures, Doctrine and Covenants is along with the Bible and the Book of Mormon, Mormon scripture. If you Google Doctrine and Covenants 132, it says right there that the Mormon church still believes in what's called the new and everlasting covenant. It's also called the principle, but it is plural marriage. And it's just this belief that men will have, that to achieve the highest level of heaven to become a God, you need to have plural wives in the celestial kingdom, which is the highest degree of heaven. And the current prophet of the Mormon church, Russell M. Nelson, and the current first counselor in the Mormon church, his name is Dallin H. Oaks. These are the two highest ranking Mormons in the world right now. Their first wives have both passed away. They have both been eternally married and sealed to their second spouses. So right now, the number one and number two guy in the Mormon church, the prophet and his first counselor, are both eternal polygamists right now. And so the Mormon church has to do this dance. When the media asks, they'll say, oh no, polygamy, that's that's those weirdos down in you know uh, Colorado City, down in Southern Utah. We don't have anything to do with polygamy. And that's deceptive because it is still in our scriptures. We still believe it's an eternal principle and our leaders are still practicing it, at least in the eternal sense. But they believe that we had to stop practicing it right now, day to day, or the federal government would have seized all our assets and shut us down. So it's it's typical deception where the church tells the public one thing, but maintains its private beliefs secretly. And it's 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 one of those little bit culty, right? A little bit culty. Another similarity between Nexium and Mormonism, you guys call it lying for the Lord. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And we called it the ethical lie. Yeah. Ethical lie to protect Keith because people aren't, we would say, not integrated enough to understand his polyamorous lifestyle. They don't get it. In that world, people who choose it, people who choose to for a woman who wants to marry a man and share that man with as many women as 
as he decides is appropriate. They think they're doing something noble, something important, something the celestial marriage, plural wise, whatever you want to call it. And I have to say, like, I've, you know, traveled with my close women friends with our kids and being like, hey, sister wife, and like in a jokey way, because, you know, it's been easier to share the housework and and take turns with the kids and and the men too, right? Like, because we're not misogynistic. My point is, why do people agree to this other than that? Can you explain the draw? What's that mindset that they're like, yes, going to get as many sister wives as they can? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think the male sex drive, and, and I don't want to perpetuate a stereotype that male sex drives are higher than female sex drives, because honestly, I think female sexuality has been suppressed and oppressed and objectified for millennia. But I think stereotypical male sex drive can account for a lot of that. I think even if we go back to the primate world, male mammals are sort of wired to reproduce their genetic material as much as possible. Whereas maybe maybe in the female biological world, females are more wired to kind of protect the, the offspring once they're produced. And, and so I think we're just sort of tapping into basic biological instincts, but what makes it twisted and perverted, there's that saying that there's always going to be bad people doing bad things and good people doing good things. To get good people to do bad things, you need religion, right? (laughs) And if you can get God to sanction this behavior of men subduing or conquering or manipulating as many women as possible into what amounts to sexual predation, well, again, you've got God's license. And so it's a real conflict. And, you know, people don't, modern Mormons aren't raised to believe in polygamy. It's just never discussed. And so, you know, as you're growing up a Mormon kid, you're just like, oh, Jesus loves me. And Joseph Smith is God's one true prophet. And the Book of Mormon is true. And we're the one true church. And the rest of the world someday is going to figure that out, you know, and and it's don't drink alcohol and don't do drugs and don't have premarital sex and be a good citizen. Like that's what's so deceptive uh, about Mormonism Mm -hmm. is you're raised to be Donnie and Marie Osmond or how Donnie Osmond Marie appear. And what's wrong with that? And that's what the Book of Mormon musical really does capture so well is, you know, all these elders are just happy and smiley and, and they're nice to people. Like what's not to love about that? It's the insidious doctrines that are held from the members until later that many they don't discover until they're 30 or 40 or 50. That's the problem. And that goes back to, I I think I have three or four things that chap my hide about Mormonism, but one is the lack of informed consent, Sarah. It's the fact that four or 5 million people right now are Mormons giving 10% of their income, giving 10 to 20 hours a week to the church, dedicating their lives to serving the church without informed consent. They don't know the, the truth about the church's history. They don't know the way that the church has harmed people and continues to harm people. They don't know that the church has amassed hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth, and and they are still giving their unquestioned devotion to the church. So number one, you know, one of at least three or four on my list of what chaps my ass is the lack of informed consent, but it's all driven mm-hmm. by the claim that the church speaks to and for God. Right. Yeah. It's a fraud. Yeah. It's a, and, and the, and the hardest parts are held, they're withheld from the members. The members don't even realize that they're good. They're in a polygamous cult. They don't even know it. And to sum it up, it seems like the doctrines are there to justify primitive impulses as opposed to explore them and understand them. Sometimes, but it's mixed. 
It claims it's to mixed do that. because I've, I still haven't tried alcohol or weed or I've only had sex with one woman my whole life. You know, that's part of the bite model. The B is the control of behavior. The church wants to control when you masturbate, if you masturbate, how you masturbate. They want to control, you know, no sexual behavior before marriage. And some would argue there's something good about that. I think there's a real dark side to that. But, you know, you could have Orthodox Mormons arguing that, no, the church is expert at getting the members to control their most base behaviors. And let's just be clear. It wasn't all the Mormon men that were practicing polygamy. It was just Joseph Smith and the men that he gave the permission to. So it's not so Mm. much that polygamy was everywhere. It's that Joseph doled out the privilege based on what he would get in return. And that's, you know, the under the banner of heaven talks a lot about that. Yes. So Scientology has, you know, I see a lot of parallels between the Mm -hmm. two, has legal aspects that protect Scientology. What are the things that protect the Mormon lie, I guess, legally? What are the forces that they have? And I'm not just talking about like forces of like, I'm going to litigate you or like, yeah spiritually like how do you feel like this still has a hold and what are the things that the forces that you feel like good evil are are keeping it uh, intact so it's money power and pr so the church is richer than god at this point they literally have hundreds of billions of dollars in stock and bonds and cash that's not assets right just in investments it has hundreds of billions of dollars so it's got the best law firms in the world the best lawyers in the world and they can shut down any lawsuit just the boy scouts of america it turns out that over 20,000 mormon boys and young men have joined a class action lawsuit at having been sexually abused as a part of their mormon boy scout troops this has been going on for decades but none of us have known it until now how did the church hide how did the mormon church hide Five decades of mass sexual abuse of its boys and young men with lawyers that would silence and pay off and coerce its members. So money and then power. Because we're only a little bit culty, not too much culty, instead of like Scientologists or Jehovah's Witnesses that are kind of marginalized, we have higher than our percentage per capita of U.S. senators, higher than our per capita of members of the U.S. House of Representatives. Mitt Romney, you know, was the Republican nominee for president. You know, we have power. We have CEOs and most of the major Fortune 500 industries have Mormon CEOs. We have so much money and so much power. And then we're just, we're global experts at PR, at these shiny, happy commercials that show Mormon parents loving their Mormon children and doing good in the world and doing service projects and silencing the critics. Like the Mormon church, if the church finds out that a documentary is going to come out that's unfavorable or a news story, they have the power to call up ABC or CBS or NBC and get the project shut down. That's how much money and power they have and how they're able to control the media. Just in the Utah marketplace, they own both the, the Deseret News and through a believing Mormon and Mormon money, they own the Salt Lake Tribune. And so the church has a lock on Mormon media, even in the state of Utah. So, so much money power and, and control over PR that who can stop it? The Mormon church makes mm. so much money now 
off of the interest of its investments, that if all the members stopped paying tithing today, if all of the members, right now it's estimated that that the church brings in $8 billion a year in tithing and assets. If the Mormon church, if all the Mormons today stopped paying tithing, the church could still fund its ongoing operational budget off of the interest of its cash and stock investments. That's how wealthy the church is now. Think about that. That's so wild. Oh, look, I mean, growing up, you know, again, it was peripheral for me, but the image they had created in my mind, I was big into sports growing up. Every time I'd see someone, you know, went to BYU, take a year off and go on a mission, I was like, good God, that's, I wouldn't do that. But that's pretty noble that they do that, you know, and, and Steve Young, Steve Young's your poster boy. I mean, that guy's, that guy's a boy scout. He looks like he's, you know, a, a great role uh, but model. But even, even Steve Young now, you know, I, I don't want to speak too much about what I know about his family, but let's just say, Many of his family members are no longer necessarily believing in the church, and they've kind of come out public that they have an LGBT child. And it's very well known that they are very strong LGBTQ advocates, sort of in opposition to the church's stances, even though Steve walks a very delicate line because he tries to maintain good relationships with the church leaders. But there's no one's really questioning where Barb and Steve Young stand on on relative to the church on right. its stance on LGBT people. And he grew up in Connecticut, and he grew up in a different kind of demographic. Totally. Fritz, I think, was the very... But just like Nexium and Scientology, the church knows how to use its celebrities to paint a really powerful image to to the world. And that's another key. Well, yeah, that's my point. I mean, that's kind of image I had of them. And again, without knowing the the history. The PR was successful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's powerful stuff. We always discuss that there's red flags along the way that you can't wrap your head around, you shelve it. We would love to know your ultimate wake up. What pulled you out of the bubble? Yeah. So I as, as I was listening to your Mike Rinder interview, you guys were were touching on a concept in Mormonism that we call the shelf. So so the first thing that I heard of that caused me trouble, I was like eight or nine, and I learned that the Mormon church did not allow black people to be in full fellowship. So prior to 1978, I was born in 69. Prior to 1978, black Mormons could not go to the temple. They could not receive the priesthood and they could not get married in the temple. And I knew that as a kid. And I'm like, huh, that's kind of weird. Why would Heavenly Father keep black people out? But then in 1978, miraculously, God, you know, as, as is quoted in the Book of Mormon musical, God changed his mind about black people. And all of a sudden, black people were able to be members in full fellowship. So that was the first issue I put on my shelf. And, and shelf shelving something in Mormonism just means I don't want to deal with it. I'm going to stick it in the back of my brain. And and then you just start putting things on the shelf. You know, you grow up and, and your friends who aren't Mormon will joke with you. Oh, oh, you're Mormon. How many wives do you have? And again, no one ever taught me about polygamy as a kid growing up, other than me learning that my grandma was the daughter of a polygamous family. But our family didn't talk about that. Polygamy was something you put on the shelf. So I put polygamy on the shelf. When I was a high school kid, I divided the number of Mormons. Just, just out of curiosity, I divided the number of Mormons by the number of people in the world. And I got a number that was less than one half of 1%. And this was during the time I was being taught that the Mormon church was the one and only true church on the face of the earth. And I thought, wow, isn't it kind of a coincidence that like these white people from Utah and Idaho just happen to be God's one true church on the earth, but God is so inefficient and ineffective that only 
you know, less than one half of 1% of his children know, you know, which church to join. And, you know, but again, I put that on my shelf. I served a mission in Guatemala, a two-year mission in Guatemala, and it was a corrupt mission. And what I mean by that is the mission president who led the mission was gunning to become a high-level church leader. And so he encouraged us to baptize, you know, children without their parents, to baptize young girls without, you know, any parental supervision. We were baptizing, some missionaries were baptizing over 40 people a month. That's more than one a day. And these people hadn't really learned the church's teachings. They hadn't really uh, ever been to church in many cases, but the mission president was just wanting to inflate the numbers so that he could become a, a top church leader back in Salt Lake City. I, I saw this and I actually was a whistleblower on my mission. And I told my mission president, this is wrong what I'm seeing in Guatemala and, and I'm not going to stand for this. And he screamed at me. And he sent me home early, four months early from my mission, such that I had to continue it in Arizona. And that was the first time I experienced what I would call ecclesiastical abuse, where a leader literally was abusive to me in a very emotionally violent way. But again, I'm 21. Mm. I, you know, I'm a Mormon. Mormonism isn't just something that you hold loosely. It is your entire identity. So again, I had that abusive experience. I put that on my shelf. I went to BYU. I got married in the temple. And it wasn't until I was 31 years old working at Microsoft Corporation, and I was asked to teach high schoolers in my local Mormon church there in Washington. I was asked to teach them church history and doctrine, where I first came across this book that I told you about called No Man Knows My History. And for the first time, I said, I need to read the book so that I can teach accurate history. And I read that book and I learned all these things about Joseph Smith. And then I shared it with my wife and she read it. And that's when my shelf collapsed. That's when I realized Joseph Smith was a fraud. He was a charlatan. He was a sexual predator. And I had built my entire life on a lie. Now, here's the twist. I remained an active Mormon for another 13 years after losing my faith in the church. Wow. That's how much power the church still had on me and has on millions of Mormons to this day. I would say up to 30 to 40% of active Mormons today don't believe some or all of the church's teachings, but there's such a high consequence with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your siblings, with your aunts and uncles, with your business. There's so much heavy financial repercussions to leaving the church and to coming out as a non-believer that the vast majority of people just stay silent and pay and pray and obey because they don't want to face those consequences. They have so, so much, much equity. Yeah. The dependency yeah. is so strong. If you're trying to start a cult, that seems like that's the the thing to create is that you can't leave. Yeah. And yeah. Th th there's a, there's a saying that my friend once told me, a cult is any organization that won't let you leave with your dignity intact. Hmm. And that's Mormonism and that's Nexium yep. and that's Scientology. You can't, there's no graceful yep. way. There's yep, no sure. reputable, honorable way to leave a cult. You will be smeared and demeaned, marginalized and ostracized. And that's the sign of a cult. Nobody gives a fuck if you leave the Methodist <laughs> church or the Presbyterian no. church or, or sometimes even the Catholic church. Mormon church, uh, you, you can lose everything. You're cut off. You can lose everything. Yeah. So what's the, I mean, you, you're doing your podcast, what do you see as a potential, I don't want to say solution, um, what but what do? Do you, what do you see as something <laughs> that can evolve it? Because it's not, it's not, well, it's not something you're going to solve overnight, clearly. I mean, you've been at it for as long as you've, you've been at it. And 
how do you build awareness and how do you get people who have so much equity into this thing to at least start the process of questioning and and is there and if if they do do that is there anything left to salvage in your mind what what do you see as something that can do that in a, in conjunction with what you're doing what can we do you are doing it <laughs> you guys are doing right. it what people need is education and to be awoken yeah. and i'm going to tell you something very important what other cult ex cult members don't realize is how profoundly they affect Mormons and members of other cults that they weren't a part of. I can absolutely tell you that up until a couple of years ago, I considered the C word to be as offensive as the F word. And I'm not talking about the C word you think I'm talking about. <laughs> even though I had lost my faith in the Mormon church in 2001, and even though I was excommunicated by the Mormon church in 2015, it's only been in the past one or two years that I've even been willing to consider the idea that the Mormon church was a cult, that I was raised in a cult. That's how hardwired my brain was. That's mm -hmm. that's the other people. And guess what freed me up to consider the possibility that I had indeed been raised in a cult? It was going clear. It was, mm -hmm. you know, learning about Keith and Nexium. It was learning about the Jehovah's Witnesses, learning about Jim Jones, learning about David Koresh. And so the most important thing people can do is raise their voices and speak up and educate. And so any book, any mm -hmm. documentary, The Vow, any podcast mm -hmm. is going to probably make a bigger difference. And by the way, the Mormon church knows this. The reason why they excommunicated me, one sure sign of a cult is that they excommunicate their critics and their dissidents. That's how they maintain control. And so th the sure. reason why the Mormon church and other cults excommunicate and shun their dissidents is because the most dangerous weapon to a cult are its ex-members and its critics. And that's yeah. why you guys are heroes to me. Sarah Nippy, that's why we're freaking bringing you guys to Utah. That's why we're, we're interviewing you <laughs> on Mormon Stories. That's why we're taking you to an F and jazz game. And that's why we, we that's why I wanted to come on this podcast <laughs> and what's why I love you guys. And that's why I respect all the ex-cult members is because that is the most important thing any of us can do is just raise our voices. And it doesn't have to be with the podcast. Tweet, Facebook, right. Instagram, speak up, raise your voice, and you will you will transform the world. It's education. It's the <laughs> church's lock on information that controls the thoughts that then controls mm -hmm. the behavior. But if we unlock the information, we can allow people to think for themselves such that they can then start to act for themselves. That's the chain. That's the magic chain. I would also imagine someone from the Mormon church seeing another system with yeah. parallels allows it's, them it's to... It's too personal if it's your tribe, go, oh, but if it's someone else's yeah. right. tribe, yeah. there's enough distance there. And that's why we need each other. Yeah, I mm -hmm. can't tell you how many listeners to Mormon Stories podcast are ex-Jew, ex-Scientology, and I mean Orthodox Jew, not not, yeah, yeah. not yeah. liberal Jew. They're yeah. ex-Orthodox Jew. They're ex-Scientologist, ex-Evangelical ex Christian. We need each other. And that's why we need to partner and collaborate, you know? Yeah. Do you see a world where there's a liberal Mormon, you know, down the road where they extract maybe some of the principles? If you, I, I don't know. I was trying to create that. Like, that's one of the reasons I didn't leave the church in 2001. I thought, huh, I'll start a podcast and I'm going to try and change Mormonism from within because Judaism has reformed Judaism. And I don't know, most people don't mm -hmm. know that the largest branch of Judaism in the United States not only do you not have to believe 
you know, uh, in God, not only can you be a lesbian or gay, you don't even have to believe that the founder of Judaism, Moses, was a historical person, and you can still be a practicing Jew. And That's so me. I thought, oh, is that you? <laughs> yeah. You were were you raised Reformed Jew? Yeah, I was raised Reformed Jew, but Jewish, but my dad was Anglican, but more atheist. And so I had like a very uh, at a smorgasbord of choose your own adventure. So I was yeah. I called myself like culturally Jewish. But yeah, I went to I, I got bat mitzvah in a Reformed synagogue and yeah, and and liberal religions have a hard time keeping their members. Yeah, I've gone away and come back. <laughs> Sometimes people raised in liberal religions become cult fodder because they didn't get quite yeah. the quite the mm. formula that they needed, such that they felt kind of lost and and without an identity. And that's what sometimes cults pick up children of liberal religious people. <laughs> I think that is part of what made me, there's a number of things, but that is one of the things. And I think that Mormonism as well as Nexium provided a template for all the answers, you know, and yeah. when you're a bit lost and in your twenties and you want some answers, here's a place where all the answers are. And I think that's very appealing to people and what can be a big trap for a lot of people. And certainly was for me as well as community and meaning and, personal success and all those things. But yeah, I think that, and I don't blame my parents because I know my parents will listen to this and they're going to, oh my goodness, what did we do? Like, no mom, (laughs) you're a great mom. I love Hanukkah. I love the way I was, I actually really love the way they introduced me to religion that that they took me to all sorts of different things and really let me figure it out for myself. I mean, I had a hard road. Look at you now. Look at you now. now. I love my life. Right, babe? We're we're crushing it. Oh, yeah. And Nippy, to answer your question, there are people within the Mormon church today trying to make it a more progressive liberal religion. And the church is simultaneously fighting a battle on two fronts because there's this prepper fundamentalist front in the Mormon church where these people are saying the church is boring, the church is stale, the the Joseph Smith religion is the type of religion I want, and they're becoming fundamentalists Mm -hmm. or neo-fundamentalists or preppers. You've got the church losing conservatives to ultra-orthodoxy, and then you've got the church leading liberalism because what is liberal Mormonism? It's basically the 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 stepping stone to ex-Mormonism. And I, mm. I have to say this, that part of my shelf breaking was gaining sympathy for the LGBTQ community. And part of the second thing that chaps my ass about Mormonism <laughs> is the high rate of LGBTQ suicides. Mm. The suicide rate amongst youth and young adults in Utah is two to three times the national average. And a very large percentage wow. of that suicide rate are LGBTQ Mormon youth who decide that it's better to end their life than to continue their life as Mormons here on this uh-huh. earth. And so... Um, that's part of what woke me up. And so I figured I'll try and stay in the church and make it a safe place for LGBTQ youth and adults. And of course, when I gave my TED talk in 2013, that was the beginning of the end for me because the church summoned me to a disciplinary council in 2014, right after my TED talk, telling Mormons to be LGBTQ allies. And then they excommunicated me soon thereafter. And so there are progressive Mormons trying to change the church. I was one of them. But if you speak out too loud and vocally, and by the way, Barb and Steve Young are also progressive Mormons working within the church to try and change it. But they have to do this delicate dance because if they stay silent, the church will tolerate them. Like you you yourself said, you didn't even know that Steve and Barb Young were LGBTQ allies. Well, that's because if Mm -hmm. they're too loud and vocal, the church will excommunicate them like they did me. But if you're too loud and vocal, if you're too successful 
in in promoting a progressive or liberal Mormonism, the church will excommunicate you and then strike fear into other wannabe progressives or liberals. And so it's just a, it's a really difficult dance, uh, and the church doesn't want to go there. Do you know that the church has led the average age of the fifteen men who lead who lead the Mormon Church is something like eighty five years old. Like our prophet is like ninety seven years old. That's the guy. Imagine a CEO wow. of a of a major Fortune five hundred company that's ninety seven years old. The average age of our top leaders is like 90 years old. You know, that's why we're always 30 years behind the times on race, on women's issues, mm-hmm. on LGBTQ issues. And so it's it's kind of hopeless. It's kind of hopeless. <laughs> it seems like, you know, that the problems that we're seeing politically or whatever is going on right now aren't proprietary to the United States. They're in any kind of faction or group, and you're going to have the same kind of division go on no matter no matter what. They're not proprietary to Americans or not proprietary to black, white, Asian, whatever. It's like if somebody has an idea and they're conservative with it and someone wants to be a little bit more progressive with it, you're going to have that natural push-pull, unfortunately. But it seems to be really extreme uh, in Utah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. We're in a weird social times right now. Yeah. I I think we've been here before. We'll have to save that for another episode. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The weird social times that we're in. Totally. I have to ask you, and I think one of the things that we're really trying to focus on for season two, because there are so many people getting out of culty things, is providing the roadmap for healing. I think you've talked a lot about your advocacy and your podcast and try to change things from within and making a difference in a way that's in line with your values. Is there anything else you can share with our listeners for your healing journey and what's worked for you to to get, and I know this is a big part of your work now, is reclaiming faith and transitioning to a new faith. Can you tell us a little bit about that switch? Yeah, yeah. I, I pursued a PhD in clinical and counseling psychology at age 40. I didn't get it till I was 46 because I realized that it's not just as simple as leave your cult and you're happy and healthy. Mm-mm. When you leave a high demand religion or a cult, all these holes develop inside your heart and your soul, your identity, your spirituality, your morality, your sense of meaning, your sense of purpose, your beliefs about the afterlife, your community, your marriage can be disrupted, your friendships. There are so, there are so many holes that develop. And so what I realized is the, the big job after leaving a high demand religion or cult is to fill the holes. You have to figure out what your spirituality is. You have to figure out what your morality is. You have to figure out what to do about death. You have to find a community. You have to find friends. You have to figure out what the meaning and purpose of life is. And that's all super hard. That's why religion exist because they kind of package the answers to all those questions up into a neat little bow and tell you this is what God mm-hmm. wants for you. So it's super hard to leave a high demand religion and rebuild a life. And so I recommend a couple things. One is education and that's reading books, listening to audiobooks, watching podcasts. Like Mormon Stories has over 1500 hours of people just telling their stories. And I would have never thought a podcast would last 16 years with over 1500 hours of content. So why is there still a demand 16 years later for Mormons telling the same old story about how they lost their faith in Mormonism and left the church? It's because it's so hard to leave a cult or high demand religion that people will listen endlessly to get validation for their decision to leave and tips and tricks on how to rebuild a life afterwards. So listening to podcasts and watching YouTube channels and reading books is huge. That's all part of the education. I recommend therapy or coaching. Find a culturally competent expert who's either a licensed mental health professional or a really qualified life coach, either for your individual needs or for your marital support. If you're in a, in a marriage, get 
professional help. The next thing is find community. We run workshops and retreats for the sole purpose of helping people find friends and community after they've left a cult. That is the event that we're bringing you to, Sarah. So I worked with some friends to create the Thrive Foundation, and it's not a money make. It's totally nonprofit. It's a total money loser. Nobody's <laughs> making any profit. And the whole purpose of Thrive is to create workshops and retreats and events so that ex-Mormons and questioning Mormons can get together, realize they're not crazy, realize they're not alone, meet other people, hear Sarah talk, hear Nippy talk, hear other ex-cult members talk, get inspired, find hope again, make friends, make community, and start to build a life. Because I think societally, we suck at creating communities and lifestyles that aren't religious. We have not figured out how to create secular ways of life. And the only way to do that We've been relying on religion for millennia to do what we need to do for ourselves. We just have to start creating communities and ways of life that are secular and then sharing our best practices and then promoting those best practices across our ex-cult movements. I think that's the way. Right. At least that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. That is that is a great, not righteous, not culty path out of this mess. So we're thank trying. you. It's messy. It's hard. Everybody gets lost. So many people get lost in drugs or alcohol, sexual experimentation. Like it's so hard to leave a cult. Some people don't survive leaving the cult. It's way too hard to right. leave. And so we're just experimenting. If you've got great ideas, I want to hear them. <laughs> we have a lot to learn. We'll it's learn from each other. How's that? Thank you so much for your time. That was such a treat to, Thank to you, get John. to know you and just part one, really. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll say two things. Number one is thank you guys. You are doing the hero's work. You are saving lives, saving marriages, saving families, and you inspire me. And, and I mean that very sincerely, your stories inspired me to keep going at times when I wanted to quit. And then I just want to apologize. I know I talk a lot and I'm really <laughs> exuberant and that's mostly because my day job is to ask questions and to listen all day. It's rare that somebody actually mm -hmm. asks me questions. So if I was too exuberant, if no, I was too okay. talkative, no such thing, it's just because I'm so passionate and, and I never get a chance to actually say what I think and feel. So I just, I thank no, you for your patience fantastic. as I just we, we explode. That no, was great. Yeah, it's great. We love it. Tell our audience where the best way to connect with you and on your social and your podcast, where can they find all that stuff? My website is mormonstories.org. You can find me on Instagram, on TikTok, and on YouTube at Mormon Stories. Yeah, and you can email me at mormonstories at gmail.com. I love to hear feedback. We love new listeners, and we just want to help change the world. John, thank you so much for your time, your exuberancy. It fuels us. It's moving and fueled up again. <laughs> and I can't wait to meet you and high-five you. I adore you guys. I love you. And don't give up this work. It's some of the most important work you can do. So you guys, thanks for inspiring me. And let's just keep kicking ass together. That sounds great. And by the way, I just spoke to God and God said that, Nippy, you need to take me to the spot. So that's what that's what we need to do right now. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? It. I spoke to God. him the other day and he said that you were going to try that with me and to look out for that tactic. So. <laughs> Got you there. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I think Sarah's the, the prophetess here. Not Yeah, not direct Nikki. line. John, I spoke to God and... That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, a good note to end on. We need, if we're going to have cults, we need more female-led cults. I agree. Female -led I agree. Cults. I sign up for that. That was so great. Yeah, so he can. 
That was intense. He knows his stuff. And we no, know that no, he no. wasn't on drugs because he doesn't do drugs. But he was fired up. That was the emergent property of never doing it. That I think you have clarity. He certainly has clarity. And I realized, though, that we didn't get to uh, what chaps your ass. Did you have one? In general, what I feel like the ass chapping universally is going on, I see it particularly in the Mormon community, is there's this positive front that all these movements have that hide this clandestine agenda. We had it too. Yeah, no, in everything. And all the, even the movements you see going on, I don't care where you stand politically, you know, whether you're right, left, whatever, they always they always take these positive things and abuse them to accelerate agendas. And that just really chaps my ass. And it chaps my ass that other people don't see it and then they're susceptible to it. And if you question them, you get lambasted. And I don't like that. That's part but, of the but he's, the outside, he's, right? and like, the... he's such an undeniably good person. And the fact that, you know, he has to go through stuff like that. And, you know, and, you know, a lot, I mean, all these Mormons, you know, even he was saying 30 to 40% of them you know, question the doctrine and all that stuff, but they have so much equity tied up into these things that they can't really stand up for it. It, It's all it takes is standing up, you know, and someone at the top to stand up. So the whole system of that chaps my ass. That chaps my ass too. Anyway. That was a long episode. So we, we're going to wrap it up, but before we do, we got to make sure we get some of that. Oh yeah. It's time for word salad. I'm going to give you a topic. Okay. God. Mm. Word salad that shit, yo. It's interesting when we say God, God can be something that is objective that we all agree to. It can be something subjective. He speaks to you. Maybe you even speak to him. I find the God hypothesis something to be extremely personal. And when you speak to him or her, for that matter, it could in fact be you speaking to him or her at the same time. Depends if time is linear in your world. These things can be sometimes sensitive, sometimes not something comfortable to share, yet at the same time, very informative and informative not only to your well-being, but informative to others' well-being as well. So when we say God and you pick one God and render all the other gods moot, in essence, you're an atheist. And in being an atheist, you are in essence rendering all gods moot. So when you speak to God, is it a God? And those are personal (laughs) questions. Understand? That was pretty good. I think I kind of. Yeah, I think just I just riffing on God. That. And some people might say that God is dog backwards. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. And on, on, on that note, stay tuned, everybody. everybody. Thanks for listening. Have a good day. Wave those trincheros. Bye bye. Sick and tired to the depths of the ocean. Let's keep the conversation going. We'll be back soon with more episodes of A Little Bit Culty with more experts and survivors. And sometimes experts who are survivors, as well as some familiar faces from The Vow from HBO. If you've got suggestions or questions on upcoming topics, find us on Instagram at A Little Bit Culty. And for more background on what brought me here, my memoir, Scarred, the true story of how I escaped Nexium, the cult that bound my life, is available on Amazon, Audible, and where most books are sold. If you'd like to help us spread the word about A Little Bit Culty podcast, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Seriously, like take out their phone and tell them to press subscribe. It takes a second. 
We're also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and every major listening app. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe over the cover art of this podcast to find show notes and helpful resources. You might also find some offers from our sponsors there. And when you support our sponsors, you help us keep this podcast going. Just don't be a little bit culty about it. A Little Bit Culty is executive produced by me, your co-host, Sarah Edmondson, and Anthony Nippy Ames. That's me. Associate producer is Jess Tardy. Produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Citizens of Sound. Our amazing theme song, Cultivated, is by John Bryant and co-written by Nigel Asselin. I'm Sarah Edmondson, and thanks for listening to A Little Bit Culty.